0: I'll begin with that question I mentioned this morning Uh, somebody was interested in clarifying some of the terms that we use and I think it's important for the clarification because it can get very confusing in this use of certain English words uh, that can have multiple meanings So at one point, uh, I was just sitting in the staff dining room. This was a while ago, a couple of years ago. And somebody asked me if I could just express in a few words what mindfulness is. And it's a bit like asking, you know, to define in a few words just what is art, what is love, what is... (coughs) Now, it's very hard to capture the fullness and the the many nuances. One of the most frequent, especially now as mindfulness, you know, as these teachings or some facsimile of the teachings are spreading in the society about mindfulness. One of the most frequent responses to what it means is living in the present. You know, not being lost in the past, not being lost in the future. And that's a good beginning, but it really uh, is not at all sufficient. And in explaining that, begin to see some of uh, the meanings of these different terms of mindfulness, of awareness, of consciousness, of attention. So living in the present. Now, one of my favourite animals uh, are the uh, black labs. You know, the breed of dogs because they're so incredibly <coughs> playful and friendly. And so, when you look at black labs or any really any animal, I'm just using them as an example because uh, they're one of my primary meta objects. <laughs> <laughs> It's hard not to smile, you know, (laughs) you just see them and... (laughs) Uh, They're really in the present. (laughs) They're having a great time (laughs) in the present, kind of running around, you know, literally being led around by their nose. (laughs) So they're in the present moment, but they really don't look to be very mindful. So mindfulness has to mean something other than being in the present. So we could say that that being in the present, but not yet mindful, uh, there are different uh, aspects of the mind that are happening there. One is just the simple fact of consciousness. right? It's the black lab or ourselves or living beings, that black lab is not unconscious, right? It's knowing things. It's knowing sights and sounds and smells, just like we do. So that's the function of consciousness. That's what consciousness means. It's just the bare knowing of sensory input. So that's quite different than mindfulness, although it's the foundation. So consciousness is there in every moment you know, in every sentient being. So what else is happening in that black lab consciousness? There's the knowing, there's also what we uh, would call perception, which is that factor in the mind of recognizing, not necessarily conceptually, although we recognize We'll use concepts, but we could think of it as that factor of mind which distinguishes one thing from another. You know, so that black lab, as it's running around having a good time, it's distinguishing between lots of things, certainly lots of different smells and sights. So that factor of perception is also present. And of course it's present in all sentient beings, it's called a common factor. know so perception is there but that's still not mindfulness that's simply the factor that distinguishes between things then there's attention what does attention mean within the framework of the buddhist teachings and the buddhist psychology attention is also a common factor which means it's right there in black lab consciousness and it's simply that ability of the mind and it's, it's quite um, the ability of the mind to at least minimally focus on the object, right? If there were zero attention, the mind wouldn't land any place, right? It's attention which allows the mind to land just minimally, it's not, it's not deep, it's rather superficial. But it's always there. Without attention, without some degree of attention, nothing would be known. Right? Because the mind has to attend, even very superficially, to the object. Okay, so the black lab, this consciousness, this perception, which distinguishes between things, there is attention. mindfulness is something other than those things you know although all of those are present uh, as well so we could think of mindfulness we might call it the observing power of mind or uh, another way of saying it might be we're knowing that we know right so it's not just that black lab consciousness which is lost in what's happening, although it's knowing things, when we're being mindful, there's a meta, M-E-T-A, aspect to it, right? where we know that we know, or we're observing what the object is. So that's a, that's a characteristic of mindfulness that really is not in that black lab consciousness as far as we can tell but there's another aspect to mindfulness in addition to this observing power and knowing that we know what's happening and this is an aspect that uh, is critical for understanding understanding this practice of insight meditation and we could call it in one way of speaking we could call it the ethical dimension of mindfulness and this is not you know as, as mindfulness spreads often this is the part that's left out you know people will talk about attention and being in the present and maybe even the observing power of mind sometimes that's included but very often the ethical dimension of it is not included. So what does this mean? So mindfulness is not only the observing power of mind, but it's a very particular kind of observation. And that is an observation or an observing of what's arising without greed, without hatred, without delusion. You know, and this is, this is understood in the Abhidhamma framework, the Buddhist psychology, in the understanding that mindfulness is always wholesome. It's always a wholesome mind state. So I'll give you an example of how we often miss this dimension of mindfulness in our practice and how we can often spend a long time thinking we're being mindful, but it's actually not mindfulness. So just think, for example, call to mind, some time when you were experiencing perhaps a lot of discomfort. Might be physical pain, it might be some difficult emotion. You know, it might be one of the hindrances so if we're knowing that it's there, that's the first step, and we're recognizing it, so that's perception, we're clearly recognizing what it is, we're observing it and we know that we're knowing it, so that's, that's a component of mindfulness, but if we're observing it through the filter of aversion, we're observing it in order for it to go away. So that's not mindfulness. Right. That's perception, we're recognizing it. But it doesn't have that wholesome quality of mind which observes without grasping, without pushing away, without being diluted. And I speak of this uh, particularly because in my practice, with one particular emotion, I spent years mistaking perception for mindfulness. So, for myself, and I may have mentioned this in one of the talks, but uh, the main afflictive emotion that I worked with over the years was fear. So fear came up in lots of different uh, situations and sometimes it was I could see it was related to a particular circumstance and often not. Often it was just the the primal emotion, and I knew it was there. I recognized it, I was noting it. Noting, by the way, is a function of perception rather than mindfulness, It's recognizing the object. So I was noting it, I was with it, I knew it was there, I knew what it was, but for years, it took me a long time to see that that observation uh, was happening with an either somewhat gross or sometimes very subtle not wanting it, right? I was I was watching it so it would go away. It was not acceptance of it. And what was so interesting was that when finally my mind kind of open to what genuine acceptance of it meant and could settle in to that acceptance being with it without aversion that was the first moment in all of those years of you know working with it and trying to understand it and psychologizing it and all of that it was in that first moment of genuine awareness that that whole big fear story that I had created and kind of the stuckness of it in the moment of that acceptance it all washed through and it's not of course that it doesn't come back but the relationship to it has changed so this what I'm calling the ethical dimension but it's just that sense of mindfulness being the observing factor of mind distinguished from simply recognition, so observing without or not, without that filter of either holding on or pushing away or being lost, being identified with it. So I hope this gives you some idea of how we're using these terms of consciousness, just the bare knowing, and you might think of, uh, I like the, to just have that image of black lab consciousness. Now, consciousness is there, but pretty clearly not mindful. Perception is there, recognition. Attention is there, just that, that basic landing on the object. Mindfulness is the observing power of mind, but observing in a very particular way. Just one other point that often gets confusing, and that is how we use the term awareness. And it is confusing because even in speaking and in Dharma talks and instruction, we often use awareness to mean different things. So it's not surprising if it gets confusing. Does awareness mean consciousness? Does awareness mean mindfulness? And in different contexts it might be used in different ways but I think the simplest way to hold it in general is to equate mindfulness and awareness. It can be used in other ways but rather than just create a lot of confusion, I think generally speaking we can use those terms synonymously. So that's the little wrap on terms. (laughs) I did get a few questions by note, but um, do you have any questions? Continuing with the terminology, I'm wondering if you can talk about the way the teachers are using the terms will, volition, and intention. Okay, with uh, (coughs) continuing in the terminology discourse, uh, will, Volition and intention. I can't speak for my colleagues, (laughs) but when I use those terms, the gold standard, (laughs) the Goldstein standard, (laughs) uh, they are synonymous. So... Will and Volition and Intention is all, and, and again, I'm coming, especially with regard to Buddhist terminology, uh, and, uh, I come a lot from kind of the Abhidhamma perspective of these definition of terms, because in the Abhidhamma, the Buddhist psychology, uh, things are very well defined. And my first teacher, Munindraji, and also Saida Upandita, they were very steeped in Abhidhamma. So a lot of how I received the teachings, I used that framework. I appreciate it a lot, not because it's some absolute description, but rather there's just a clear definition of how terms are being used. So within that context, they're synonymous. Other teachers may not uh, be using that framework. And so they may be using the terms in different ways. You know, if at any point you're hearing something and it doesn't quite fit, then it would be good just to you know, try to clarify it with who's ever speaking. Because again, in English, we can use those terms in many different ways. So we're talking about the use of these terms, particularly in a Buddhist context. That, that function of willing something or intending intention. I don't know whether any of you practiced you, when I gave the instruction on intentions. It's extremely interesting. It's a very subtle aspect of the mind. It's not always predominant. It is a common factor, which means it's always present. And the, I find it so interesting to just play with the investigation of it because it's one of the aspects of the mind that we most unknowingly identify with. Right? Because even as we're seeing all these different aspects of thought and sensation and emotion and perhaps even consciousness itself as being not-self, the very common felt sense of I is that sense of being the agent who's acting. Right? But really, what if we look very carefully, that felt sense of being the agent, the doer, is really the identification with volition. There is a willing, a volition behind actions. If we're not tuned into it in some way, it feels like I'm the one willing. I'm the one with the volition. But when we look carefully we see that's simply another impersonal factor of mind. Not I, Mine, not myself. It's conditioned by a lot of different things. So it's it's just interesting. But I will say it might not be interesting for all of you. <laughs> so if it's interesting to you, you might just explore. And if it's not interesting at this point, don't you know? Don't. Confuse what you're doing. If attention uh, makes the mind land on the object, what is then Yoni's soul, Manasikara? Why is attention? Why is attention, I think, brings in that aspect of mindfulness, that ethical framework? So it's attention without greed, without hatred, without delusion, which is what makes it wise. You know, that's that's my simple understanding of it. Also, to uh, we might think of that as the very specific uh, aspect of attention. Uh, a wise attention could also mean, and I think it's, it's sometimes used like that, in a broader sense where, so in English we might say, attending wisely to a situation. Right, so it might be more reflective. We might be in a situation and think about whether an action is skillful or unskillful you know and so it has a it has a broader meaning as well I wondered, and, and I think you said, well, if you pause, then there's a space in which you can choose whether or not to take the step or the turn or something. So then I wondered, what about the choosing part? Mm-hmm. Is there, is there a, a noticeable action of choosing, Itself, but you know it. absolutely you know and and uh, <laughs> it's just really interesting to experiment so one time I was this was when I was practicing in India I was up in the mountains uh, during the summer months and I was walking on it was a country road and I was just playing with this and I just stopped and then I was wanting to see what would make me move again and I could see kind of you know the thought come and go okay take a step nothing happened (laughs) take a step nothing happened I stood there a long time (laughs) but I was just interested okay well what's gonna finally get me to move And at a certain point, I can't exactly remember now what the uh, compelling force was that gave power to the intention. That's to what I call the command moment, the one that actually, where the intention actually initiates the action. But it was probably something like uh, aversion to the cold or. you know, there was there was some mind state, which conditioned that. Uh, the actual impulse to act, right? and so you, that can be observed. Sometimes it takes it can take a long time, you know, for something to come and actually initiate the action. Uh-huh. so if i see one of you standing out there for 3 days <laughs> waiting for the intention <laughs> but probably something will probably something will motivate you <laughs> but okay so there's there's one other critical point here that intention the volition you know the command moment to do something that is ethically neutral you could it, It's almost mechanical. You know, it's just the energetic. So what determines the skill or unskillful nature of that volition is the motivation associated with it. Right? And so what's the factors associated with that intention? And is it desire? Is it wisdom? Is it compassion? Is it anger? You know, and maybe maybe with movement where it's relatively easy to at least notice the intention, it may not be so clear exactly what the motivating force is, but in our life actions it's particularly uh, revealing to notice and not so much here on retreat, but outside of retreat, intention, as I mentioned, intention to speak. And then to see the motivation associated with that intention. It's very revealing. You know, because we, we often have a wide range of motivations which impel us to speak. And to do a lot of other things, to eat. You know, what's motivating us? Is it wisdom? Is it to nourish the body? Is it greed? Is it? Lots of different motivations can be associated with intention. But the intention itself is neutral. So how we use the term mind. The way I use it, and I think this is fairly classical. It's basically consciousness... Just that basic knowing faculty, plus all of the different mental factors that can arise in different combinations, along with consciousness. And so that's that's the mind. It's it's the consciousness plus mental factors. Um, and so, th- accord again, according to the Buddhist psychology, there are fifty-two mental factors, at least in the Theravada tradition. I think Tibetan maybe has some other similar number, but not exactly the same. So, clearly people... I think the idea is not to take that as the absolute, but rather as a fairly comprehensive description of different qualities in the mind that arise along with consciousness. Some are common, meaning they happen all the time. Some happen occasionally some are wholesome some are unwholesome depending on whether they're productive of peace or suffering so consciousness plus mental factors equals mind then I am averse toward that okay so this is a really uh, interesting question and it comes up a lot because I think it's very common for people to equate unpleasantness with aversion and the way we understand conventionally understand our experience is exactly as you said simply by being aware or especially since you used the the example of eating and beets. I like the definition of vedna, that is the quality of things being pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. I like to use the language of uh, how we taste the object, not obviously not literally, because sometimes we think that this quality of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality is inherent in the object that some objects are pleasant, some objects are unpleasant. No. The vedna is how the mind experiences the object as being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So uh, just to to really look at that and see how you're understanding that because it's very helpful to recognize that the Vedana, the quality of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral is a mental event even though it may be also about physical sensations but it's the way we're experiencing them that's either pleasant, unpleasant, neutral so have you had the experience of being with some uncomfortable physical sensation and really being equanimous with it. Where it's just, it's unpleasant. We recognize that it's unpleasant. But the mind, at least for a few moments, uh, we might taste the impartiality, you know, which which is another word for equanimity where it's just that bare knowing and, yeah, unpleasant, unpleasant, and there's no pushing it away. Have you had that experience at all with physical sensation? I mean, I think it's not that uncommon, even, you know, for yogis who have been practicing a while. Even if it's for short, you know, we may not be able to sustain it, and it may go from that mindfulness again back to aversion and that kind of pushing away. But we can have the experience of, yeah, unpleasant with no pushing. So it depends, and it's not that you stop knowing it's unpleasant. That awareness is still there, but there's no reactivity in the mind. So I suggest you go on a beet diet. (laughs) until you perfect. <laughs> you could get enlightened eating beets. <laughs> we have been chanting the metha um, every night, and there is a part here that says, um, may they enjoy safety and abundance and have become of their true property what does it really mean have come as their true, true property right so in in the metachant that line that's translated may they have karma as their true property i have no idea <laughs> <laughs> because it never made much sense to me <laughs> since everyone has karma as their true property <laughs> Are you, so there probably, there probably is an explanation of it, but I don't know it. <laughs> uh, yeah. After the, after the talk, I'm going to ask Bhante in the back room, <laughs> 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 and, and maybe he knows. <laughs> M- maybe it's, I mean, I'm just taking a guess now, but maybe it is meaning or suggesting May we understand karma as being our true property, because often, often that's how it's talked about—that uh, you know that we are the heirs of our own ca- karma, and it's talked about really our only possession, you know, so, something like this, some language around that. So that would make sense, you know, if we may we understand karma the law of cause and effect as being our true property so that's a possibility I speaking of understanding karma ah um, okay. I'm no that's okay The way I understand that is that the, the (laughs) the, the, the question is that in the teachings, both teachers talking about this and, you know, in the Buddhist texts themselves, it's often said that intention or volition is karma. And so the question was, given that I said intention is ethically neutral, is that simply shorthand for the motivations associated with it, what does it mean something else? The way I understand that is that it's volition, that, that factor in the mind of willing something that uh, you might call it the, the vehicle of karma. It's the energy which, which carries the, the power for something to bring a result. What the result is will depend on the motivation. But it's that force which is the, you might call it the energetic carrier of karma. And you, can, you might be able to get a sense of that because volition or willing, there's a power to that. You know, it's what initiates action. So there's an energy involved in that, a, a mental energy. Uh, and so I, for me, I can get a sense of what that means. Yeah, that's thats what's carrying the karmic charge. But what the char- charge is depends on the motivation. There was... intentionality is unknown. It's sort of at the automatic level, which produces all sorts of chaotic comma. So I just wondered if you had something to say about, is is it one of our main purposes to develop consciousness of intentionality so that we can be more purposeful Mm -hmm. and ethical? So the question or the comment was that a lot of intention, Really seems to be unconscious that, it, that we're just rolling along, and it's is a big part of our practice to learn how to become more conscious of intention, uh, so that we can make wiser choices. And I think that's definitely so, you know. Um, and that happens—that refinement you could say the refinement of motivation, you can think of it happening from two sides. So from one side, it's by becoming more aware of that moment of intention before the action happens. So it just gives us space for us to discern, okay, is this skillful or unskillful? And as I've said, in our lives, speech is a huge area for that, but also different actions you know, that we do, if we have practiced somewhat paying attention to the intention before we act, then we can see and make choices. But we can also approach the refinement of motivation from the other side, and we often do. For example, just by hearing and reflecting on the teachings, So when we, for example, take the precepts, or we're practicing metta or compassion, that's helping us condition wholesome motivations even if we're not exactly aware of the motivation right before the action, but the wholesome one has been habituated by our understanding, by the reflections. Does that make sense? Because a a lot of <coughs> a lot of our motivations, even before people come to meditation, basically we're acting out habitual patterns of motivation. Well, there are lots of really good people in the world, you know, with wholesome doing wholesome things who are not necessarily aware of this ability to watch the mind in a careful way, but for whatever happy circumstances they were, they were, their minds were habituated, maybe through teachings, maybe through education, maybe through parents, maybe through upbringing. The habit patterns of wholesome activity may have been conditioned in the mind stream. So we, we can do that, too. We can habituate wholesome intentions. Uh, Another little aspect also is with remorse. Doesn't remorse kind of reveal that unconscious intentionality often? There's a sense of being able to see it for the first time where you were coming from, perhaps? Uh, Yeah, so the question is about remorse and whether that reveals sometimes uh, previous motivations that we might not have been aware of. Uh, This actually, uh, there was one question about this, which maybe I'll read. Uh, Can you speak about working with shame and guilt and self-forgiveness? I feel I have really let something go and then the self-judgment and blame for past unskillfulness arises again And how important is reconciliation apologizing to another uh, and forgiving ourselves So this just raises uh, what for me was a very interesting investigation in my mind Um, of discerning the difference between guilt, remorse, what we might call wise shame and unwise shame, forgiveness. So at one point I was sitting, actually I was doing a self-retreat right here at IMS, and this goes back many, many years, And uh, there was just some strong feeling of guilt about something and I don't even now remember what it was about, but the guilt was strong feeling. And it was so strong and as we know, it's a terrible feeling, you know, it's, it's really very painful when the mind and the heart is filled with guilt. So at a certain point, you know, in the midst of all this suffering, I just... I really wanted to understand how am I getting so caught in this suffering and when I looked more carefully just directly at the guilt and the feeling of it, I saw so clearly that guilt is an ego trip because it's all about I in a negative way. I'm so bad, you know, and then we just lay this Trip of self judgment and self blame on a sense of self. So when I saw that, when I saw that, oh, this is just a trick of the ego. You know, I so, saw this is Mara at work. But then I tried to understand well, yeah, guilt that I'm so bad, that, that's just a lot of selfing, negative selfing. But where's the place for understanding that sometimes we have done unwholesome things? And that's when I began to see the difference between guilt and remorse. We might call it wise shame. You know, just an understanding that that was not a wholesome act. That was unskillful. But there's no self-judgment in that. There's actually wisdom. It's seeing something clearly. There is a sense of remorse you know, where we feel sorry that we did it. To whatever extent possible, we take responsibility for it. But it's all in the field of kindness and forgiveness because it's based on understanding. Very different state. And so the way I use the word remorse is in that context and really distinguishing it from guilt when remorse comes, it very often is a powerful uh, reminder, or it calls to our attention, yes, that action was not, that was not a wholesome action. And, you know, and looking back on it, we can, act, we can learn from it. We can say, okay, well, what was motivate, what was the motivation here? You know, and in the clear seeing, it provides a kind of strength for us not to do it again although sometimes with strong unskillful habits we may have to see that many times um, so there's one more little counterintuitive piece to this and that is the understanding within the buddhist framework that it's more skillful to do an unskillful action knowing it's unskillful than to do it not knowing it's unskillful and that when i first heard that it didn't it was counterintuitive because we tend to think well oh, i didn't know it was wrong and somehow that at least to some level excuses it and the buddha is saying just the opposite he's saying that the not knowing something is unskillful is simply adding delusion to the mix And it actually prevents the possibility of future restraint because we don't even know that it was unskillful. Whereas we may see ourselves doing unskillful things out of desire or greed or aversion, but we're aware enough to know, And you know, unless you're a saint, there'll be lots of actions motivated, you know, by these unwholesome moods at different times. But through our practice, we get to see it more and more clearly. And even though the impulse may be, you know, strong enough to have us do the action once again, but no, oh yeah, that, this is not a skillful action. Even as we're doing it, we know it. I have found that just that knowing, and sometimes it's seeing it repeatedly, actually becomes the source of future restraint. At a certain point, that wisdom aspect will be stronger than the defilement aspect. So it's a very interesting question just to look at, you know, in our experience of guilt, remorse, wise shame, unwise shame. Do we know something is unskillful or do we not? Every question is another whole Dharma talk. One uh, one of the other meanings of mindfulness, which is not one that I mentioned, but is in the text, another function of mindfulness, which is the word we use to translate from the the Pali word sati, And, literally, the word sati means to remember. So, one of the aspects of remembering that is fulfilled in sati is remembering what is skillful and what is unskillful. So, it's like calling to mind, oh, this is wholesome, this is unwholesome. So, that's actually an aspect of mindfulness. (laughs) 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 Well, from the fully enlightened perspective, <laughs> 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 uh, there there is a poly word again, and this this is. This is where I just appreciate, you know, the clarity of the abhidhamma because it just defines terms. So there is another word in Pali which is called chanda, and that's translated as desire to do. So, and this is often the fact that it's work, it's just, it's the desire to do something, to accomplish something. So this is ethically neutral, but it has that, It has the same function of the desire of greed but without the greed aspect. It's just, so we use the word desire and that's why it's interesting because in English the word desire can mean a lot of different things. So just as you said, desire to hang out with friends. That's not, just because we're using the word desire it doesn't mean that that's necessarily a mind state of greed it could be the desire of this chanda it's just just desire to do something that's ethically neutral also and so we have to see what is the motivation maybe it's love you know maybe it's just the feeling of metta Uh, you know we want to be with that person out of that maybe it's compassion maybe it is attachment you know, maybe there is clinging there. So all of it uh, is just uh, an arena for investigation. But whenever in English you would describe your experience, oh, I have a desire to do something, don't assume that because we use the word desire to describe that experience, it necessarily means greed or clinging, because it, it doesn't necessarily. So the question was about delusion and the difficulty in seeing it because at that moment we're deluded (laughs) so it is hard to see and it it is in some way easier to see you know the the greed or the anger the aversion uh i'm hoping we'll have a chance on one of one of the uh, nights when there's no talk and we play a tape uh Sharon Salzberg gives a great delusion talk because you know this the buddhist personality types which is a very kind of interesting and in some way fun personality template you know and according to these teachings we each are predominantly a desiring type an aversive type or deluded type and there are some very uh, pointed and also somewhat humorous descriptions of how these different personality types act in the world. Uh, And so Sharon is a self-declared deluded type and she gives (laughs) this really wonderful talk about it. So we'll try to uh, play that. Um, I think that the clearest kind of signal of delusion being present in the mind is just that sense of not knowing what's going on you know so it's just the mind is clouded by that not knowing is not able to see exactly a sense of confusion so that that would all be aspects of delusion um when we're lost in thought and we don't know that we're thinking that's also delusion and so that's a common experience we all have you know, because we're in the experience, and we don't know in the time that we're in, we don't know that it's happening. You know, so that's being deluded about our present moment experience. A good way to highlight that experience would be, and this suggestion has been made, I think, quite a few times, pay particular attention to that moment when you come out from being lost in a thought well, so this happens many many times a day you know we're, we're often we hop on these trains of association we don't know that we've hopped on we're on the train and then at a certain point we become aware that we're thinking so really highlight that moment don't don't as has been said, don't rush back to some other object or just take some moments. It's almost like you're comparing what it's like to have awakened to what's arising compared to what it was like just a few moments before when you were lost. You know, and in that moment of waking up because you're so close to having been lost, the difference becomes very clear. We get a very vivid sense of the difference between being lost in what's arising and being awake, of delusion and wakefulness, of mindfulness. So you can really see that clearly in those moments. One of the uh, very common tendency uh, that we have as practitioners, especially for a while until we've learned the lesson, uh, you know, that when we wake up from being lost, for many people there's just a habit of self-judgment there, you know, or aversion, or, oh, I was lost again. That is, that's just adding aversion to delusion. It's completely unhelpful. And it's, doesn't take much. It's just a slight shift of habit. Every time you awaken from being lost, be delighted. It's like the note you could make is, awake again. Oh, great. So now, for all those times, the many, many times in a day when we're lost in a thought, that many times, exactly that many times, do we have moments of awakening. So just think of all these moments of delight that are gonna pervade your day. <laughs> Every moment that you awaken from a thought, from being lost, delight, delight. Oh, awake again. So it really changes that whole inner environment and we, act, we learn something about delusion and wakefulness you know, because we're really seeing it clearly. Okay. There's so much. I, the Dharma is, it's vast, you know, this, this exploration of our minds, consciousness and all the different array of mental factors and mental qualities, you know, and our experience of the body, it's just, there's so much to understand, you know, and the practice is both about just that interest in investigating, you know, what is this that we're calling our lives? You know, it's all right here. Uh, And the clearer we get about how this whole process is unfolding, you know, mindfully, without judgment, just seeing, then there's actually a tremendous uh, transformative potential. You know, we see, oh, this, these patterns just creates suffering. These patterns lead to peace, and we begin to make wiser choices. So it's a tremendous thing you're doing. Uh, you know, it's, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you do too. <laughs> so let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening.